This is 35 West, a podcast about politics and policy of the 35 countries in the Western Hemisphere. I'm Richard Miles, Deputy Director of the Americas Program and Director of the U.S.-Mexico Futures Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Was how professional the Mexican but government. are we ready? Long-term I don't reform think. trends in Argentina. Right. And that's what no happened. Role at all in the NAFTA negotiations. In this podcast series, we'll discuss some of the biggest issues affecting countries in our own backyard. Elections have consequences, or so we've heard. One of the consequences of the November midterms is Democratic control of the House of Representatives, including the House Committee on Foreign Affairs. You know, it's not only Latin American diplomats who don't know who to talk to um, in Washington. It's U.S. diplomats in those countries who do not know how to talk to. Here to help us understand what that may mean for U.S. policy in Latin America is Jose Cardenas, a former official at the U.S. State Department, National Security Council, and USAID, and a former Senate staffer. Welcome back to the show, Jose. Thank you, Richard. Pleasure to be here. So you're looking tan, rested, and ready here. You had a good uh, Christmas and New Year's, I take it? Yes, I did. Uh, A lot of change in Washington that uh, has to be... uh, uh, prepared for and uh, a lot of a lot of shifting uh, chairs and it's going to be interesting to see how it impacts policy. Uh, so let's start with um, the House Foreign Affairs Committee, as I mentioned, and we now have a new chairman, Elliot Engel, a Democrat from New York, who, as far as I can tell, basically spent most of his his uh, adult life or career in politics. Has been in the in the House since I think 1988. And prior to that, uh, served in the New York State Senate for about 12 years. So basically, I think, elected at the age of 30 and has basically spent his uh, time in the House uh, representing the state of New York. And so I was trying to, to get a sense of, you know, what is his interest level in Latin America. So I just took a look at the press releases that, have, that he's issued just since the election. And uh, there are about probably nine or ten press releases that deal with Latin America, everything from questioning whether Venezuela belongs on the state sponsors of terrorism list, uh, criticism of the administration's handling of Central American migrants, and particularly the use of tear gas at the border, uh, call to raise human rights issues with President, then-President-elect Bolsonaro, now President Bolsonaro, um, and then uh, USAID to Central America and Mexico, and then finally a couple on Guatemala's uh, basically the fight with CSIG, the Anti-Corruption Commission, and restrictions on the judiciary, uh, and then one on the erosion of democracy in Nicaragua. So actually fairly broad-based um, uh, statements since the election, and then, of course, he just took um, – took helm of the committee on January 4th. So I think the good news, Jose, is that he's paying attention uh, to the to the region. But um, uh, from what I can tell, it, with the exception of maybe Nicaragua, he's, he's at odds, not surprisingly, a Democrat, at odds with the administration's policies um, uh, pretty much across the board. So where, where does that leave us in terms of is there, do you think, a, a Democratic party policy, per se, or set of policies on the Western Hemisphere? And uh, if so, you know, what do they look like? And what are the, you know, what are the friction points with the Trump administration? Well, thank you, Richard. I I think that that those of us who uh, follow U.S. relations towards Latin America have been very fortunate that there does exist uh, in Washington, a general bipartisan consensus in terms of what should be the United States policy towards Latin America, strengthening democratic institutions, promoting economic prosperity, and fighting transnational organized crime. And I, I think that that uh, 
new chairman angle is uh, reflective of that bipartisan bipartisan consensus. Those of us again who who work on these issues know uh, the chairman uh, very well in terms of his. Uh, long-standing interest in Latin America. And he usually is, uh, again, uh, somebody who is not going to be shy about uh, taking on what we see as as the attacks on democracy, the need to to push back on transnational organized crime. In other words, some of the, the issues that you would normally identify with a more Republican uh, point of view. That's not to say at all, as you pointed out, that that Chairman Engel will take his shots at the uh, at the at the Trump administration, and and he will call it out when he sees. Uh, Again, when he disagrees with certain policies, but on the on the overall general approach, I think Chairman Engel exists solidly within within the consensus on Venezuela, on Nicaragua, on uh, the need, for example, to maintain good relations with Mexico. He is, uh, as you also noted, he he came out a little bit skeptical of the new president of Brazil, Jair uh, Bolsonaro on, on uh, some of the things he said during the campaign. But again, by and large, I think we are going to be in, uh, we're not going to see a, a significant shift in uh, U.S. Uh, policy towards Latin America coming from the U.S. Congress. Uh, again, I, I think that, uh, yes, he also has uh, more uh, liberal left members of the committee that will want to, again, try to get some of their issues uh, to be considered before the full committee. But again, uh, Chairman Engel is somebody who has a longstanding record on Latin America, one that identifies with supporting democracy, supporting economic development, and uh, promoting U.S. interests in the, in the hemisphere. So I, I took a look at his statement um, from a few days ago when he was elected chairman, and he listed what I could identify as four priorities, appear to be his priorities um, as chairman. One uh, was the importance of overseas alliances, in particular NATO. Um, obviously, Foreign Affairs Committee deals with the entire world, not just Latin America. Second, he said American values, which appears to uh, his definition is basically promotion of human rights, democracy, rule of law, which obviously does apply to Latin America. A third, climate change, which is you know in tan- tangentially an issue in Latin America, but not not so much, uh, I think, in other parts of the world as it is. Um, and then um, what he calls the root causes of migration, which definitely applies to <laughs> to the Americas. Um, it's sort of driving some of the political climate um, today. So let's talk about that fourth one, the root causes of migration, because as we speak, you know, the, the federal government or large chunks of it are closed down because the administration uh, is demanding a wall or funding for a wall, and the Democrats uh, don't want to give it. And it's sort of back and forth. And of course, you know, you've been looking at this a long time, Jose, as a lot of people have. Uh, you know, and I think most – it seems to me the consensus is uh, border security is important, but probably even better is, in fact, the root causes of migration, which which we all know is instability in Central America. And, you know, these people fleeing really badly governed countries, you know, poor performing economies that are corrupt, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, – if if we go and we look at what the U.S. has tried to do in Central America, um, either with or without other countries, 
is there any any reason to hope there in the next uh, couple of years that we can make headway on addressing those problems in Central America that are either directly or indirectly right causing these people to to try to enter the U.S.? Well, I, I agree, Richard. I I believe that that Central America is going to be a uh, certainly a. a uh, a venue or an issue that's going to attract a lot of congressional interest. And this spans both Democratic and Republican uh, viewpoints. I, I think that you're going to see a bipartisan consensus around uh, providing that oversight to what U.S. assistance, how effective is it, has it been in Central America, as you said, in quelling the what we refer to as the push factors, those uh, conditions on the ground in Central America that are making it intolerable, so intolerable for the citizens that they take that great uh, decision, that that, that uh, dangerous decision, uh, very emotional decision to leave their families and and make the tra- the dangerous journey uh, northward. I think that, uh, and this again, this spans. Uh, at least the last three administrations, we spent already uh, tens of millions of dollars uh, on ex- this exact same problem. When I was in the uh, the Bush George W. Bush administration, throughout uh, then, of course, uh, Obama administration, and now two years of the Donald Trump administration, it doesn't seem like we are gaining any, much ground over 20 years of assistance to that region with the express purpose of ameliorating and mitigating those push factors to put that are that are driving people northward and i think that this is a tremendous opportunity for a bipartisan consensus on congressional oversight to see what is working what is not working what do we need to do better to again attack these problems. We know what they are. They are insecure neighborhoods and lack of economic opportunity. And frankly, uh, Donald Trump is, in my opinion, he is very well positioned to, again, what we talk about breaking furniture is that, unfortunately, uh, governments in Central America have have, uh, long ago got very comfortable pursuing a export model, if you will, whereby they were completely content for their citizens to leave their countries, make it to the United States, and then, of course, send remittances back to their families. That alleviates from these governments the responsibilities they have to make uh, these countries more, uh, you know, creating more opportunity and, and creating more prosperity for their citizens. So we have to really... Uh, basically get serious with these governments, that, that that model is no longer acceptable. And the fact is, is that we have, as a country, the United States, we are there to help them. We can't want it more than they do. So there has to be a, a, a culture change also in the way these governments operate in Central America. And I think that, again, it provides an excellent opportunity for a bipartisan consensus in the U.S. Congress to start seriously taking a look at what U.S. assistance is accomplishing in Central America. 
I say, do you think, uh, you know, you make a, a very good point in that this is not a recent phenomenon. We, we have been dealing, we, the United States, have been dealing with instability and the resultant migrant outflow for a long time, whether it's because of war or, or economic uh, circumstances. And a lot of good, smart people have been trying to figure out how to, to solve this uh, with not a lot to show for it, as you said. Is there a potential... Um, I actually got two parts of this question. I'll divide it up here. Is there potential, do you think, is it conceivable that uh, the Democrats and maybe Republicans would say to President Trump, look, we'll give you the funding for your wall, you know, agree on a figure. And maybe it's $5 billion or $6 billion or whatever. Um, but in exchange, the United States needs to commit to continuing to provide some sort of aid or assistance or uh, to Central America. Would the administration, you think, go for that deal, or you, President Trump himself has gone back and forth between, okay, we're gonna we're gonna give money to Central America and we're gonna take it right back? Well, that's certainly a deal I would take. Um, I, I believe that um, that we, as a country, uh, we help ourselves when we help these governments deal with their challenges, and uh, I don't think it's it's. Uh, it's particularly helpful to keep threatening uh, to zero out these programs and, and, and things of that nature. It does. Um, I have no objection to getting the attention of, of Central American governments that that the United States is serious about this time. We are serious about uh, achieving uh, some objectives with our, our assistance, our assistance programs. But I, I, I believe that there are innumerable opportunities to come to a bipartisan agreement. Maybe uh, uh, that's a bit uh, optimistic. Maybe it's a bit naive in Washington today. But when we're both concerned with uh, what ser best serves the U.S. interests, and, and, and I, I can't believe that a, uh, a policies or a situation where uh, – Human smugglers, human traffickers, uh, thieves, uh, highway robbers—the people that that uh, that uh, prey on desperate people moving north—is a tenable situation for anybody. And we need to get past the uh, the social media uh, cacophony and the the insults flying back and forth, et cetera, et cetera. And we need uh, to get to to where the the majority of the American people are. The American people expect and deserve a secure border. And that that results in a number of things that have to be done. It's not just a barrier, a wall. It has to be a holistic approach, a whole of government, both Republicans and Democrats, getting together on how do we, again, mitigate the push factors, how do we mitigate the pull factors, and, and come up to a resolution that benefits everybody, including the people who are desperate to leave their countries. Uh, so one, one interesting factor that's developed in the, in the last few months that I think is different, and that is the role of Mexico in all this. Um, and we've had two striking things happen, at least two striking things happen. One, in the last few days, President Lopez Obrador visited the border, and he's going on a tour of sort of Mexican border towns. And um, instead of saying, well, the United States is treating these uh, Central Americans inhumanely and they need to accept them, uh, which is what's kind of the previous Mexican line, you know, respect human rights and so on. 
Lopez Obrador is actually going saying, no, no, they need to stay in Mexico, uh, Central Americans. And he actually proposed a, a program, which he may not actually implement it or might not get through, of, of actually trying to make the Mexican side of the border more attractive, not just for Central Americans, but for Mexicans. So he's done things like he's, he says he's going to slash corporate taxes. Uh, he's going to slash the VAT in, in those border areas. And he's going to force uh, the minimum wage to go up, uh, to double it. I have no idea how he's actually going to do this, but this is what he's saying. Um, and he appears to have agreed to the administration's uh, Remain in Mexico initiative or program. I think that's what it's called. Mm-hmm. Um, is this going to have an effect? Because, you know, previously Mexico's position seemed to be like, you know, this is a U.S. problem, not really a Mexican problem. Mm-hmm. And, and you all need to deal with it in, in some way. And, and we're going to either look the other way or, or we're not really going to help. Does the fact that Mexico appears to be playing a different role now in terms of uh, is, is, there, is there daylight there for some sort of bilateral cooperation specifically on Central American migration? I think there is, Richard, and, uh, and I agree with you. It's, it's, uh, it's sort of an out-of-the-box situation. This is not something that, uh, that uh, longtime observers of the region probably expected to see. Uh, from the, uh, the new president of Mexico. I think that uh, I think there are a number of things going on here. As you well know, Richard, uh, since you focus on Mexico a lot, is that um, the pressures on the border are, are largely not coming from Mexicans, but what in the vernacular is referred to as OTMs, other than Mexicans. In other words, it's mostly coming from uh, people fleeing the uh, the. Uh, unstable situations in Central America. By and large, over the last decade or so, uh, as a result of NAFTA and uh, growing economic opportunities in Mexico, is that most Mexicans are uh, seeing no reason to uh, to cross the border into the United States searching for work uh, or a better future. Now, I, I also believe that that the situation is being influenced by the persona of Donald Trump. I, I think that uh, whether it was the previous Mexican president or the current Mexico, Mexican president, uh, Lopez Obrador, is that they don't want a fight with the United States, and they don't want a fight with Donald Trump. And, and so that is uh, focusing their minds, if you will, on, on what they can do. I don't see it as a long-term solution. Uh, for for uh, Mexico, that they will uh, adopt this unending acceptance of migrants attempting to make it to the United States. I think that what they're doing is they're trying to diffuse the situation. And again, they don't want a fight with Donald Trump over uh, migrants pr- uh, passing through Mexico. Where I see a excellent opportunity, and that and that. Uh, keys off of my earlier comments is a multilateral approach to helping Central American countries again quell these these uh, uh, impulses or 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 uh, the violence and et cetera the corruption that 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 uh, makes these citizens give up on life in their own country work the United States working with Mexico the United States working with Colombia which has uh, incredible experience dealing with uh, transnational organized crime and how do you how do you disrupt it? 
I think that there is an there is a tremendous opportunity for these three countries, and perhaps even in other countries that want to participate. Uh, I, I think there's an excellent opportunity for a multilateral approach to uh, to helping these Central American countries get a hold of their problems. So, so I would say I would agree with you that I think uh, part of what we're seeing is a stopgap, you know, response on the part of the Mexicans. Like you said, they don't want to stumble into a conflict with with Trump. But I also think, you know, it's interesting if you look at Lopez Obrador's comments a couple of days ago, he laid out a broader case for, you know, I want to make, I'm paraphrasing here, so I want to make Mexico more attractive um, so that Mexicans don't feel like they need to leave. So on this point, he's exactly in agreement with Donald Trump. You know, Donald Trump doesn't want more Mexicans and neither, and AMLO doesn't want to see them leave the country. But I think it underscores a bit of the the contradiction that, uh, exist in Donald Trump's mind and maybe broadly in the Republican Party. And that's if we don't want to see, say, more Mexicans in the United States or Central Americans for that matter, the long-term solution is to make uh, life better or help those countries make life better there, whether that means a better job or less violence or better governments, whatever, so that they don't feel like the United States is the their only option left, Right. Um, but that also means, you know, U.S. businesses may decide to pick up and relocate their factories there, et cetera, et cetera. So you have this fundamental contradiction in, you know, what Donald Trump, his vision for America and that's U.S. manufacturing and, and low-wage jobs will stay here. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, these countries are somehow <laughs> going to pull themselves up by the bootstraps so that their citizens won't want to come to the United States. Right. Do, you, do you see it that way? And if, if you do, what, what's the way out politically to resolve that, that contradiction? So, you know, if you're going to uh, make life better, you have to admit of the possibility that U.S. businesses are part of that solution. Yes. Uh, I think that, that um, when we look at, you know, long-term trends – in, uh, let's say, the internet, the regional economies, the international, the the long-term trends, um, we have to look at those in a completely different way in the digital age. What is normal now in 10 years is going to be totally obsolete, whereas in the past, uh, economic changes really took decades to sort of uh, develop and then, uh, and then you, it requires adjustments and uh, again and then and then you hit the equilibrium again. I think that today things are changing so quickly in our uh, in the international economy that I think that we're sort of flying uh, by the seat of our pants in many ways in terms of developments and ad- adaptation. So that. The, the time frame is significantly shortened. And, and I think that it's, it's a question of, uh, of being able to adapt uh, as conditions are changing. It, it sounds uh, a little, a little uh, 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 basic, but whereas economic change, uh, again, in the past, uh, was something that, that happened very, very slowly and gave people time to adapt and, and things of this nature. I think that the, 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 the reality of today uh, in, in the 21st century is something that, that change is, is, is coming fast and that any settled patterns uh, are, are, are temporary. And, and that I think that that's, that is something that, again, has to be uh, – uh, 
really embraced as the as the changes are are being implemented. I, I don't know what happens in today's uh, economy with automation and and robotics. What does that do to the future need for low wage labor, low low wage labor in uh, manufacturing? Um, and so I, I see that maybe in 20, 30 years, again, many of those factories are going to be back in the United States using robotics. Uh, and, and so, you know, we, we yes, the private sector is absolutely essential to any long-term progress in, in this uh, in, in this in this space. But I, I do believe that you know that that the current moment will pass. And that, you know, as our politics and as our economic needs develop in the next few years, there will be constant uh, adaptation and change. And we just have to be, uh, we can't be afraid of, uh, of greater integration with neighbors close to us. We cannot go back to some kind of fortress America. We always have to be ready. Uh, because, you know, you're either on the train or you're on the sidelines in today's economy, and it absolutely necessitates integration with other countries. There, there is no turning the clock back. So, Jose, now that you got your crystal ball out, looking for 20, 30 years, right? Uh, I'm not going to let you put it back yet. Uh, so one last question. It's, it's a political question, or at least it's a political science question. It's the same question I asked Anna Quintana last week, um, and it has to do with sort of domestic politics and the role of – and, you know, I, I really don't like the word Hispanic because I think it's way too broad, mm-hmm. right? You know, because right. you got Mexicans, you got Venezuelans, Colombians, they all have Completely slightly different, different takes yeah. on, on yes. the world and, mm-hmm. and so on. Um, but I have to use it in this case. Uh, if one day I think immigration will no longer be the live, hot political issue that it is now. That might be 10 years, it might be 20 years, but one day it, I think it will fade in terms of, of the order of importance in which people view it. Um, once you take that away, is there any sort of unifying issue that uh, Mexicans or Venezuelans or Colombians sort of will coalesce around? Or uh, so, in other words, will they be a, still an identifiable voting block um, 20 years from now, assuming immigration is off the table? I don't think so, Richard. I, I think that that as immigrant groups become more settled. Uh, more assimilated into the United States, I think that their interests and their uh, their wants, their desires will will diversify naturally. I think that one thing I do believe that will never um, that will never be obsolete, and that is jobs. Uh, and I think that uh, they will be responding to eco- uh, appeals or policies that promote economic opportunity. I. I, I don't I, I believe that that many will come uh, from a standpoint that there there is a, an appropriate role for government in their lives and uh, and that government uh, is there to uh, provide a safety net for those who uh, for no reason uh, of their own um, wind up in in need but I think that most will be looking I think that the, where everybody is interested in is that is an economic Economic opportunity and jobs. When it comes back to the uh, the 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 homeland, if you will, I, I think that most people, uh, most Amer- most Latin Americans who reside in the United States, 
uh, you'll, you will see a, uh, a definite, um, let's say, uh, affinity or support for policies from the United States towards uh, the region that perhaps uh, hold corrupt officials accountable. Uh, they see too much corruption in their everyday lives. It is a part of their their existence in Latin America, and that is one of the reasons why they want to leave and come here uh, to the United States. But as far as domestic uh, issues, I, I think that over the long term, they will settle really on the on the same issues that that uh, most Americans do, and that is economic opportunity, safe neighborhoods, good schools uh, for their children. And they they want to be part of the American dream. And they, they realize that part of the, uh, the American dream is achieved through individual initiative. And, and instead of uh, relying on government uh, to, uh, to carve out uh, a special treatment for you, um, that's, what I, that's what I see uh, over the long run. I think that, that those same issues that, that animate and motivate most of American voters will ultimately also guide those of, of uh, settled immigrant populations. Jose, I think that's a great insight. I mean, the more I think about it, you know, in a, in a mood now where the uh, the U.S. electorate seems intent on sort of, uh, you know, toppling institutions or totally reforming them, we're we're going to get or we're getting now, you know, people from Latin America who have seen that, <laughs> have seen institutions erode and decay and become corrupt, and they're looking for strong institutions, <laughs> looking for, you know, strong rules of law. They don't want to reform anything, right? right. They want stability and and just good government. Um, yeah, exactly. I agree. We're about out of time. I think we've solved pretty much all the region's problems. <laughs> I can't think of anything else we need to talk about. But, uh, Jose, thanks very much for coming back and joining me, and uh, I look forward to having you back on again. Always great to be here with you, Richard. Thank you for listening to 35 West. Please tune in next week for a new episode, and make sure to subscribe to 35 West on iTunes and SoundCloud.